2015, the Supreme Court uh, had made a historic decision in our land. This is um, June 2015. Ruled that the U.S. Constitution grants same-sex couples the right to marry. The court ruled five to four that the Constitution guarantees the process and equal protection under the law and that states ban that states can't ban same-sex marriages. I don't know where the lesser magistrate got lost in that decision, but look, no court, no church, no group of people have the right to redefine what marriage is. I don't care if it's the Supreme Court of the United States of America. In the first year, 120,000 gay marriages took place. Uh, As of 2019, 568,000 gay marriages have taken place on this soil in the United States. Now, looking at the statistics, about half of the same-sex couples don't even bother to get married, but the other half do. So so that's that's a travesty. And you think that that a, a nation supposedly founded on some Christian principles could turn and fall off a cliff and go so far and somehow think that God's judgment is not coming to us. And think in just six years' time, the continued erosion. And what I mean by that is you, you look at how the rise of transgenderism, it's huge in our day. Compared to six years ago, I mean, it's, it's all the rage, Right? It's huge. And then, and then this whole idea, what is gender? And how many genders are there? And I'll, I'll, I'll confess to you, I, I studied a lot this week trying to find if there's some you know, biblical evidence for a non-binary or for whatever. And, and I found different statistics. Some, a few years ago, there was 12 genders, that they would say. And then another study said 36. Now it's up to 112 and you Google that and you read some of those and you just, you got to scratch your head, right? And so you know what that tells me? 12, 36, 112 just in the last five years? What's it going to be a year from now? <laughs> you know? Um, look, God's word is clear in both the Old and New Testament that God is not pleased with same-sex marriage. He is the one who has defined marriage, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is a what? An abomination. You know what an abomination is? I've re-looked up the the definition. It means to disgust deep down. So it's an abomination. Romans 1, Paul writes, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the men, likewise, gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And men committed shameless acts, and men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, right? Revelation 21, 22, a beautiful description of heaven, right? It's, it's like Eden restored, the, the, the six most important chapters in the Bible are the first three and the last three, okay? And I don't have time to expound on that. We Catch me afterwards, I'll expound on that with you. But um, they're primary, but the sixth to last verse of the New Testament, of the Holy Bible, says this, Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murders and idolaters, 
and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This same Supreme Court, I mean our Supreme Court, 135 years ago defined marriage as this. The year is 1885. You can Google it. No laws could be so wholesome and necessary than those which establish society on the basis of the family consisting in and springing from the union for life of one man and one woman in the holy state of marriage. Wow, isn't that amazing? Where we have eroded in such, in such a short time. So let's go back to Hebrews 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. We want the broader uh, context here. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body." Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. But make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would assist us during this time, that you would give us the, the eyeglasses of the Holy Spirit as we look into your word, that we would have understanding by your spirit even this day. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with each and every one here. We pray, Lord, that we would regard marriage and look at marriage as you have defined it. We pray that we would be people that are pure. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, these ethical standards that he's setting forth here, beginning in chapter 13, is largely based on those last uh, uh, 1228. Since we've received this kingdom, which can't be shaken, let us show gratitude that we may offer acceptable service. We said that all of life is worship to God. And so, in light of this, let us show gratitude by how we worship. And this is how we are to worship. Let love continue. In this first century church, there was the danger of their love beginning to wane. And so he says, no, let it remain. Keep loving one another. And by the way, these are commands that he's saying. Um, Don't neglect hospitality. Maybe there was some reasons of the persecution, of not gathering. But he says, don't neglect that, because that's a manifestation of you not loving your neighbor. So extend invitation. Don't neglect hospitality. Uh, by the way, uh, we have missionaries coming in uh, the second week in, in March. Uh, Raul and Lydia Torres, and I, I put it out on the email to say, you know, we need a place for them to stay for a couple of nights. And thankfully, three of you responded but I wouldn't have to say only one. But uh, so thank you for your kindness and generosity and, and offering to that. And then we're to have hospitality without grumbling. And then to verse 3, remember the prisoners. And remember, the, these people themselves knew what it was like. Um, and back in 1034, for 
owed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So he commended them because they had had remembered the prisoners, but he's reminding them. And there was all types of prisoners. And we talked about the persecuted church. And, you know, 100 to 150,000 Christians are killed each year in this world. This should weigh on us. By the way, there's prayer calendars on the back table of how to pray for the persecuted church. We'd encourage each family to uh, take one with you. So, chapter 13, you might break it down like this. Ethics 101 class. Okay, that's verses 1 to 7. So, that's why we're taking this slowly. It's loaded with commands. Ethics 101, loving, showing hospitality, having regard, keeping living sexually pure and having a higher high regard for for marriage about so really about money and sex right this week and next week and and contentment and then the creed about Christ verses 8 to 13 which we'll get to and then the conduct of the saints so today we're going to look at this verse that breaks into thirds very easily you should have already noticed that by now but it's three p's we're going to look at the praise of marriage and then the purity of marriage and then the punishment for the sexually immoral. So, he begins here. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, if you, I don't think the ESV italicizes supplied words. In other words, sometimes the translators um, supply words so that it makes, so we can understand really the force of the text. But this, um, in the NAS, it shows that is to be held is all supplied. That's amazing. And then some has uh, puts the imperative, makes it into an imperative, but there's no verb in this first phrase. Uh, in fact, honor, honor is put at the beginning of the sentence. That means it's emphatic. Remember, the Greeks didn't have word order, like we have subject, verb, object, or whatever. They could, if they wanted to emphasize something, that was the first word in the sentence. And this is honor, marriage. That's literally what it says. And, 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 and so since there is no verb and it's surrounded by commands, most translators make it to where let us hold marriage in honor. This word honor is an interesting word, an adjective. It's a word that's used about that blood that has purchased your salvation, the precious blood of Christ. There's the word. It, it's used of costly stones and gemstones and diamonds throughout the Bible, those stones that you see in Revelation in the New Temple, that's the word. It's precious. Now, why did this exhortation need to be made? Well, there was all types of ascetic influences in the first century, well, even into today, um, but and throughout the centuries of the uh, monastic movement and all of that. But uh, there's the, the idea that celibacy and singleness you could serve God all the better. And so, in other words, you have like people like the church father Origen who had himself castrated so, because he was deceived into thinking that he could serve God in a more devoted way. So the writer is actually speaking against such of a mindset because marriage is something that was ordained by God. He invented marriage. Marriage is good. It's good for many reasons that I'm going to be bringing out in our sermon today. So th- some thought that the body or any type of pleasure 
uh, had to be evil, and so they avoided marriage. Paul writes about this, doesn't he? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's talking about these men who forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. So these legalistic, ascetic-type people that said you can't do this, you can't do that if you want to be pleasing before God, those are good gifts that He has given to us if they're received with thanksgiving. Just as surely as the church is called to brotherly love, it's also called to purity, right? Love, in an impure way, is perverted. And God is not pleased with that type of behavior. Love is not only a virtue that stands together with the holiness of God, because, I mean, let's face it, it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes that from uh, the Old Testament. Francis Schaeffer, I had a quote from Edith Schaeffer last week, but he said this, the, the Christian really has a double task. He has to put into practice both God's holiness and his love. Not his love without his holiness, for that is compromise. Anything that a Christian or a Christian group does that fails to show simultaneous balance between the holiness and love of God presents to the watching world a demonstration of a God who exists, not a God who exists, but a caricature of a God who exists. So in other words, if, 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 if those that are on looking don't, don't see a balanceness of piety and holiness, I mean piety and the, the word of holiness, right? And, and love, that, that, that we're misrepresenting God in some way. The first century church lived in conditions much like we do today. Um, a depraved society with all types of sexual perversion everywhere. All manner of wickedness around us. In fact, the Romans had a, such a distorted view of marriage that, that they would have concubines for their sexual pleasure and they would have wives to father their children. And then some, I read this week, that would encourage their wives, there's all these male slaves that you can choose from for your sexual pleasure. Have at it. So that's obviously not a biblical view of marriage. But this is a context in which This little church is navigating. They're navigating the waters of this type of stuff all around them. Second sub-point, God established marriage in the garden. In some ways, the whole entire trinity does what the writer says, honor marriage. First of all, God instituted it in the garden, right? Jesus Christ chose to do his first miracle at what? A wedding, the wedding of Cana. And the Holy Spirit, who, who applies the word, that, that beautiful picture of how marriage is a, is a picture of Christ and his bride, we as the bride. Marriage was in, instituted to meet the needs of man. And, and by the way, it's not as though you know, the New Testament writers, you know, it popped into their brain that, oh, wow, like Paul when he's writing Ephesians, Hey, marriage is kind of a picture of Christ in the church. No, God designed it that way from the beginning. It's not as though that was like an afterthought. Marriage is not just a legal contract, brethren, but it's a holy covenant before God. What, what, do you ever think why there are vows at a wedding? This is a covenant. This is a promise. 
function of witnesses to these covenants being made um, was for accountability, not to satisfy your sweet tooth when the wedding cake is uh, served up or to fill your belly with the chicken dinner that's coming at the reception, but but actually as a form of accountability. I heard their vows, and they made promises before God and to one another. And when they go astray, we should be there with that word of rebuke. Three primary reasons for marriage. Obviously, the propagation for children. Remember, in the garden, it says, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Um, We're obeying that mandate, as I see Adelaide about to give birth in a week or so. And welcome back, Jacob. Um, And then the second reason would be what? Preventing sexual sin and promoting purity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And so it's a preventative to sexual sin. Third, companionship. We We read the words of the Lord. It is not good. man to be alone. So as you are rejoicing, those of you who are married and in your marriage, and you know that there are single people in the church, pray that God would provide for them in his perfect timing. And we know that he will. So marriage is also a building block for society. Marriage and the family. If you were listening when I read that Supreme Court statement from 1885, they actually mentioned that whole idea. And uh, John Brown, commentator from the 1800s, says this, A family is the elementary form of human society, the germ of the nations and of the churches, and the relation in which families originate is the foundation of all human relations. The institution which forms the relation must, of course, be peculiar importance and by divine appointment. So how do we honor marriage? Well, first of all, we have the right definition, right? We go to the Bible. We we believe that definition. But then how do we honor marriage in our marriages? Well, first of all, the Bible clearly sets forth in 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. So marriage is honored when a husband leads his family and leads his wife, when he acts as the head. But let me qualify that. He's leading in love, okay? Uh, Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church, and he himself is the savior of the body. Secondly, marriage is honored when a wife submits to her husband as to Christ. Peter gives the example of Sarah with Abraham, how how she submitted to him. Third, marriage is honored when it's regulated by mutual love and respect, okay? Mutual love and respect, no domineering or anything like that. We husbands are told in 1 Peter 3, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers not be hindered. Our marriages are honored when we come in with the mindset of both husband 
and, and wife with the mindset that our greatest desire in marriage is the well-being and happiness of our spouse. We want to please them. Matthew Henry, um, oh, and then also it, it's, we, we have to have the mindset, what can I give rather than what can I receive, right? Jesus himself um, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew Henry, some of you will know this quote. Others of you may get a kick out of it. He says this, the commentator, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. It's a great, great statement in balance. So, a couple application points. A good measuring gauge of the health of any church is to look at the health of the marriages. And what I mean by that is how committed are they to their marriage before the eyes of God? It's a good measuring stick. Some people have the false idea that, that in marriage there's never sin or conflict. Just ask any of us that are married. We'll correct your naivety. Uh, very quickly, <laughs> because conflict is an opportunity to glorify God and to grow in our sanctification. We've already said, I've said on many occasions that, that the thing that contributes the most to my sanctification in 30 plus years of walking with the Lord is being married and raising children. Those two things will um, mold you and shape you and challenge you and cause you to depend on the Lord all the more. You see, it's impossible for two sinners to live together, whether they're married, whether they're not married, and to live together without conflict that happens from time to time. But mature Christian couples will face the struggles of marriage that come from time to time with grace and forgiveness and a dependence on the power of Almighty God. Sinclair Ferguson has written, Marriage and the process of coming to it is not heaven. It is the bonding together of two needy sinners in order to make a partnership which is substantially greater than either of them could have had when alone. So strong and godly marriages are what we need for our singles and for our children to look to. Not perfect marriages, strong marriages and godly marriages. Um, Secondly here, so the praise of marriage, now the purity of marriage. Look what he says. Uh, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Or you've got added words as well. It's simply the word bed and undefiled. Bed and undefiled. So why why do the people think that the word bed means marriage bed? Because it also can mean sexual intercourse. It can mean a a real bed that you lay down on, or it could have the idea of sexual intercourse. Having a high regard for marriage has profound implications for those married and those not married. So, not only did God invent marriage, remember I said in the Garden of Gethsemane, but newsflash, he also invented sex, okay? The sexual union of a husband and a wife, but its enjoyment and according to the scriptures, is clearly limited to the marriage relationship. 
So it must be undefiled and pure. He uses this word, he used this word back in chapter 7. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Well, what does he use that of? Talking about the purity of Christ in 7.26. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. There's our word. Separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. See, these Roman cities were cesspools of wickedness. We see uh, this idea, in fact, this exact word um, quoted in Genesis 49. Remember Jacob's blessing his sons, right? And in verse 3, the firstborn, excuse me, says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have the preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it when he went up to my couch. So the firstborn, and you know, Jewish, I mean, the tradition is the firstborn is to get the primary inheritance. And he lost his firstborn ship, if you will, um, because he was uncontrolled as water. He didn't have self-control. And, and earlier, like years before, but in Genesis 35, uh, the account of this is while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. What a wicked act. He defiled his father's bed. You see, the point of the marriage bed being undefiled is that the marriage bed equals a covenantal expression of marriage through sexual intercourse that is that is pleasing in the sight of god and brothers and sisters this is the place where passion can rage you read the song of solomon and some of those parts and and god is well pleased with that he invented it just as marriage uh, that is one of the best things for your personal sanctification I would say sex within marriage is one of the best sanctifying tools to keep you from sexual immorality. Marital sex is meant to be beautiful and fulfilling. That's why God created it. Some of you may be thinking, but my six-year-old's right here. Could you tone it down a little bit? I'm using biblical language, and this needs to be expounded. You see, flames a fire in the right place is a beautiful thing, sitting around the fireplace or maybe a fire pit or something, and the flames are in its proper place. That is something beautiful, equated to sex in its proper place in the confines of marriage. But the opposite is if you put flames in the living room, in the bedroom, guess what? Your house is going to burn down. And so to sex outside of marriage will burn you. Sinclair Ferguson has written this powerful sexual drives which are built into man's relationship with woman are not seen in Scripture as the foundation of marriage, but the consummation and the physical expression of it. When God made Eve for Adam, and they were naked and unashamed, and when they made love there, God looked down and smiled upon it. And this whole idea, this biblical language that is no, And then Adam knew his wife. Intimacy, right? And it's all sort of a, a type and a shadow of how we come to know God. There's 
There's intimacy, there's exhilaration. It's a beautiful picture. So it must be undefiled. So therefore, when you are sexually tempted, you must flee from it. And this applies to men and women. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.18, we read it earlier. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his body. Some people say, I just wish I knew what God's will was. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Look, don't play around with sexual temptation. Don't allow the lies of this world to creep into your mind. See sex the way God sees it. Something beautiful in its certain place, the flames of passion in its proper place, right, in the fireplace, or we can say the marriage bed, right? They they need to be in its proper place. And when you get close to the edge of dabbling with something that could lead to sexual immorality or looking at something inappropriate, the sirens in your conscience should be going off. Danger, danger, warning, let me pull back, right? That's why God gave us a conscience. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Turn with me to Genesis 39. This should be a familiar passage to most of you. We actually preached a series on the life of Joseph some years back. And this is a section where Joseph is sold into slavery, right? Thrown into prison. He rises to be the governor, right? He's uh, right under Potiphar. He's second in command. He's in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife is there, and she has a problem. She doesn't have uh, the right view of what marriage and sexual purity should be. Verse 7. So, first of all, yeah, verse Verse 7, temptation can come upon you suddenly. It came about after these events that his master wife looked with desire at Joseph. It wasn't as though, wow, he's working so hard around here. What a good godly man. No, the desire was for, right? Uh, And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put me uh, over all that that he owns. And there is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see his reasoning here. Temptation comes quickly. But he's already got the mindset, I'm going to resist temptation. And also, the end of verse 9, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? And by the way, what she did here was not just a a mild solicitation. In the Hebrew, it is a command. Lie with me. Have sex with me. She was demanding of, of Joseph. We have to look beyond the external beauty and makeup and under all of it, is a desperate, pathetic woman enslaved to her sexual passion. And first, and then also, sexual temptation can be persistent. 
right? Come day after day. Look at verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he did not and he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And then verse 11 and 12, you need to be prepared for the surprise attack. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the other men of the household were there. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So... I don't think it's because Joseph just instantly had the courage and the fortitude to do these things. No, he was a man that feared God, and he was not going to allow himself to fall into those things. Proverbs 5 and verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. And in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps take hold of Sheol. That's what an adulteress is, right? Drips honey, honey sweet, looks inviting and all that, but where does it lead to but destruction? Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Sins that would like to entangle us must not be ignored. For if we try to cover them, they will pierce us like a sword. And what is the result of sexual immorality? Well, um, that's a large reason, reason for our abortion mill ministry, because women are now using abortion as a form of birth control. So you've got unwedded, unwanted pregnancies, extramarital pregnancies, forcible rape, sexual diseases, all of that. That's the shrap metal, as it were, of sexual immorality. So we've seen the praise of marriage, the purity of marriage, and now finally our third P, the punishment for fornicators and adulterers. This exhortation really comes as a, as a powerful motive to what, as he's communicating to them. He, doesn't, he could have just left off this third little phrase. And, and, and the reason why, the, the, the force of what, what we've just looked at should be thought of as a command is because now you've got this little word for on the basis of fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He uses this as a powerful motive to sexual purity. You see, sexual sin is deceitful. All sin is deceitful. Sexual sin especially is deceitful. That's why the writer told us back in chapter 3, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, Satan loves to lie. He loves to get us to believe these lies. The lie that a sexual union can take place without a, a commitment of marriage is a lie. The lie that, that, that somehow uh, you can get by with it is a lie. Your sin will find you out. The lie that you can dabble in sexual sin and come close to the edge and maybe stick one foot over the edge but pull back quickly is a lie. Because when sin is matured, it gives birth to death, Right? A little porn, a little flirtation with the, the, the new receptionist at the office, 
you know, uh, the unmarried couple that's dating that says, well, we'll stop before we get too far, right? Pull back. Listen to the sirens, right? Listen to your conscience. So what are these words? Fornicators. Well, that's kind of like an old Puritan word, right? No, it's a biblical word, even though we don't talk about it today, right? We, we don't use that word so much. But this particular word is ten times in the New Testament. I'll give you a hint. The word is called pornos, okay? And it is the idea of one that practices any form of sexual immorality. Uh, Paul uses it in, in Ephesians 5. Um, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, that immoral, that's the word, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. The author has already talked about Esau as a terrible example, right? He didn't make into chapter 11 the hall of faith, but he, he comes in chapter 12. And look in verse 16. That there, uh, sorry, twelve sixteen. That there be no immoral or godless person. There's their word, the immoral, like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. This man gave up uh, all the promises of God and the land that would be the inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup. This is a man that was ruled by his passions, and that's why they even use this. Uh, the writer uses this word here. He was immoral. The other word is adulterers, <clears throat> and um, that is obviously one who is unfaithful to their spouse. That is a married person having sex with somebody that's not their wife. We read this earlier too, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, there's our word, idolaters, nor adulterers, there's our other word, nor effeminate, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revivals, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So these two words together encompass any type of sexual illicit behavior whatsoever. Now, it says here that God will judge. We'll come back to that. That's that future judgment, right? But there's a sense in which sometimes he'll, he'll chastise you even in this life. In other words, your, sexual, your, your sin of sexual immorality has immediate consequences in many cases. Let me just list a few for you. First of all, if you're a professing Christian, it harms your relationship with God, right? It harms your relationship with God. It, 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 it harms yourself because the wounded conscience and the guilt that you feel over and over, maybe even catching a little disease or something like that, if you persist in it for a while, the hardness of heart that can set in, right? John Piper said it's a great danger. You give in to the world and its values, and you settle down on the world, and you've wasted your life, and it boils down to mediocrity. So then you just begin having this, you know, mediocre, no hard convictions, kind of a Christianity that kind of makes you feel good and still pats you on the back, but you can live in that sin. You hurt the other person, too. And then if you're married, you hurt your spouse. And you hurt them a lot. I've counseled several cases. It is painful. The pain that is thrown on to the spouse of someone that was unfaithful to them. 
you harm your children. You realize that? And then furthermore, if you're professing to be a Christian, because Christians do fall into these sins from time to time, you pollute the church. The church. The church of Christ. He shed his blood for the church. He, 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 he wants us to be pure before him. And so when, when you pollute the church in this way, you're setting a terrible example onto others. It, it's a leaven, like 1 Corinthians 5, it's a leaven that can spread for anyone who wants to follow your path. And that's why church discipline is sometimes necessary for these sins. To the one that's not repentant, and it's painful for all. So sexual immorality has immediate consequences, okay? But in the future... God's wrath will come upon the unrepentant. Listen to me. If, if you are currently practicing these things, and you think no one will catch you, you've got it all figured out, it's the night shift, it's nobody sees me, there's no cameras, i got it all figured out, I'm a mastermind of how to get away with this. You might escape the eye of man, but you will give a, account unto God because He sees all you there's no escaping god sees it all he may send these consequences these immediate consequences into your life but know for certain if you continue unrepentant as a fornicator or an adulterer god will judge you with everlasting fire the bible says it in so many places it's not one verse that maybe we yeah maybe Maybe there's a little wiggle room. No, it's multiple places. I've given you several of those. Unbelieving idolaters will stand before the great white throne and give an account unto God. That back in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And, and if you don't know what sanctification is, it even clarifies it, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The verse goes on and says, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all, the text says. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You know, when you slow down, and read certain passages, the impact that these words have. You can't take up this adulterous lifestyle and remain unrepentant. You'll suffer ultimate judgment and damnation despite maybe somebody here, but I'm a Christian, but I practice this thing on a regular basis. You will be in for a rude awakening that so many of these texts are so clear. You're, you're self-deceived into thinking that you can live a Christian life that glorifies God and constantly engage in that type of behavior. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The text says it. It's clear. It's everywhere. Right here. It will be judged. But can I just say that there's hope? It's never too late to repent. It's okay to get right now. All of us are flawed in a myriad of ways. Come to God with sincerity. Look to Christ. Consider Jesus. 
Come to him broken hearted, a broken heart. He will not turn away. Faith in Christ will transform you. You repent. Remember that verse goes on. Such were some of you, you Corinthians. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What a glorious promise. You can be washed today. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Oh, though they be red like crimson, they will be white like wool. But you must repent. You must come on His terms, right? By faith, we know that God's good gift to sex is exclusively for marriage. God is not trying to spoil your fun. You know what He's really trying to do? He's trying to enhance your pleasure. Because there's a proper place for this. God uses marital sex as a weapon against Satan when Satan would love to tempt us with various things. Well, a couple quick points of application for us as we wrap up. Let us honor marriage. You see, actually, this is another thought. Worldly wisdom has this idea of cohabitation. You know what that is? Well, we'll live together. We'll sign a six-month lease. We'll live together. We'll just make sure we're sexually compatible. Make sure that we get along. Make sure that you don't leave the lid off the toothpaste and you put the toilet paper on right and that you're good in bed and all of these goofy things, and then we'll get married. Is that worldly wisdom or what? Because God forbids it. What you are actually doing by that practice of cohabitation is sabotaging that marriage that you might consummate someday. Or this, maybe you have two, there's two young people in our church, they, they're dating, they claim to love each other, and, and the young man tells the girl, if you, if you really love me, you'd have sex with me. Prove it by lying with me, right? Is that the complete opposite? That's the complete opposite because the Bible says if you love someone, you don't lead them into sexual sin or any other sin for that matter. So listen, I plead with you. If you're engaging in this behavior, there's hope in the gospel. Come to Christ. Repent. Cut it off. Get accountability. Do whatever you have to do. Jesus said take great measures, right? If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And throw it from you. Because it's better to enter life maimed than with two eyes and land yourself in head and hell. Your right hand offends you? Cut it off. Because it's better to enter life maimed than to go to hell with two hands. Now, that doesn't mean go sharpen the machete in the, uh, in the garage to cut your hand off. What does he mean? Take drastic measures with these things. Grace and forgiveness is offered to all. We, are, we all have our past baggage, most of us, that were saved later in life. Such were some of you. But you're washed. You're justified. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? The Pharisees bring her to Jesus. Let's see what Jesus is going to do. And he bends down and he's writing something in the dirt. Perhaps he's writing... Uh, this Pharisee sin right here, and this one here, and they left one by one by one by one. And Jesus gets up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, 
I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. That's the posture of Christ. If you're struggling with these things, come to Him. He's not going to condemn you. If you're coming with a broken heart and desiring to change, get right with Him. But there's also this ongoing sexual purity that's a battle of faith. It's absolutely essential that we see that our marriages are protected. You know, Satan has all types of wiles and temptations, but you know where I think he really, the two things he wants to do is divide the church and break up marriages. So we need to be on guard. We need to have a commitment that we are going to guard these things. And in our church, we guard the, both of those things very, very seriously. And then for Christians, our Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. This is the hope that we all have, though we've been unfaithful, though we've been unclean, He purifies us with His blood. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He paid the ransom. It's it's as though He bought us off the slave block by dying and shedding His blood. Jesus has done it all. Make Him your first love. I have this against you, Ephesus, one of the seven churches, that you've left your first love. You need to fall in love with Jesus again. And you'll be surprised how these sins will lose their grip slowly and slowly and slowly. Ralph Erskine, great Scottish preacher from the 1700s, says this, Oh, sirs, here is a cord of love let down. The upper end of it is fastened to Christ's heart. The lower end of it, it comes all the way down at length into your heart. And oh, shall not Christ's heart and yours be knit together this day? Here is a cord to bind your heart to his heart and your heart to his heart. So have you been born again? Are you here today and you don't know Christ? Young people, come to Christ today. Repent of your sins and he will forgive you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that you have sustained us even with a, a message that's difficult to preach in some ways and, and maybe uncomfortable to hear uh, for others. But Lord, we thank you that your truth is your truth, and we pray that we each would apply these things to our hearts. We pray that you would keep this church pure. We pray, Lord, if there's any that are struggling with these things and they know that they are leaven in our midst, that they wouldn't run, but that they would get help. And so we pray that you would do a mighty work, preserve the marriages of this church, continue to strengthen them. We thank you that, that one of those signs of maturity that I mentioned is, is, is being fully committed to the institution of marriage as you have defined it and the commitment to each other's spouse. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.